Well, good morning uh, again. Um, and uh, yes, it is our finale to the series. Uh, for some of you, it couldn't come quick enough. Uh, for many of you, it sounds like also you wish this went on in perpetuity. So um, yeah, it's been, it's been a joy to walk through it. Uh, and today will be, uh, I think, a particular end cap to the series. I just want to read uh, something that we read every service. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, the friend of sinners. Welcome. Now, I know we're not the most uh, on-time church, but we do read this uh, every service um, to start. Uh, This is sort of our call to worship uh, here at Resonate. And I love sort of the invitation that that opener is. But it becomes a question of what does it actually look like to be that church? It's one thing to say all those things, but it's another thing to actually be that kind of church. And as we've been walking through a series where we have run the gamut of um, controversial issues, we've had very nuanced conversations around a lot of um, topics, what does it look like to just be a church where we disagree, where we have different convictions, different parts of the journey? Discipleship journey is all, all different of how we become more like Jesus. A church where there's space for doubting and disillusionment and disorientation or even healthy questioning in the process and clarifying in the process of what it means to be a disciple. And that's where I kind of want to talk a little bit more today. Um, it felt like the right sort of finale to the series is to go, okay, how do, you, how, do, how do we become more like a church for that? Not just topically addressing some of those things, but to be the actual church and to practice the things the actual church should practice. Because I don't know about your experiences in churches, um, you know, what, I, what I tend to find are uh, sort of two ends of the spectrum. The first is often around sort of line drawing in churches. That every church is fighting in some ways to figure out unity. Um, and there's often some line, and it's usually defined against some other group, but there's some line. And it becomes on all sorts of different things. Uh, have you spoken in the gifts of tongues? Then you're part of our group. Can you affirm Calvinism? Do you live with a certain form of radicalism that you're not just laissez-faire about your faith, but you're in, you're committed? And it can be all sorts of different things on different even lines. Like if your pastor doesn't address X tomorrow, you need to find a new church. And they're lines. They're all sorts of lines we create. And sometimes we mature and we get more nuanced and we're like, well, the legalistic sort of practices, I don't want any part of that. I'm going to come over here. And and we end up drawing a new line saying that that practice is not okay. And often there's a whole spectrum and everybody thinks that their own lines around what it means to be a Christian are the correct ones. And you don't realize there's people on the right and the left of you who also think that their lines are the correct ones, right? Like if you're a Church of God folks, like... The fact that we have instruments on stage is like blasphemous. That's not being really Christian. Really, really Christian is that you sing a cappella only the hymns, right? Or we wear head coverings, or we fly a rainbow flag out front, that that's the only way to be a real Christian, right? There's lines. The natural response sometimes to line drawing is to erase all the lines altogether. 
keep everything in sort of maybe don't ask, don't tell, to unify just around the fact that there's no lines. And the unity becomes sort of fuzzy. The group boundary is not clearly defined. There's really no insiders and outsiders. And at times, that can actually sound quite nice. But often, the fuzziness of some of these churches is rarely a compelling life. It's wandering. Uh, humans are not designed to be 100% autonomous to begin with anyways, and we are often communal creatures and function best in a structured community, and lack of that structure often leads to degeneration. And in a lot of the fuzzy world, individual autonomy and your preference and desire to run your own show becomes a thing of value. And as long as that's aligned and you know, it doesn't offend anybody else around you, everybody's good, but as soon as it does, you gotta get out of here. And unity around common affinity is just consumerism at the end of the day. It's hardly a picture of what Paul ultimately paints in how he talks about his churches. So let's look in Galatians. We're going to spend a little time in the text, and then we'll unpack, I think, three different views on church. Galatians 2 is where we're going to be, starting at verse 11. And then next week, we'll jump back into Matthew. Those of you who are ready for us to like exegetically walk through a book, we'll, we'll be back in that world next week. Verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, who's Cephas? Peter, yes. Uh, so Peter, disciple of Jesus, one of the inner 12, if you want to consider it that way, um, got to walk, got to learn. Um, and ultimately, it was sent out by Jesus, um, was a leader in the early church movement, um, himself uh, going around the world and, and proclaiming the gospel. Um, who's the I in the letter? Who's writing this letter? Paul, yes, that's understood often as Paul, is the one who is uh, writing this. Uh, Paul's more of a latecomer than Peter, uh, comes after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, and even ascension. Uh, Paul's trying to persecute the early church, Ultimately, Jesus comes uh, in a vision to him, uh, and uh, Paul really comes to faith and starts becoming the church's sort of lead church planter uh, pretty early in the life of the church. And Antioch is a city uh, kind of north near um, where Syria and Turkey start to meet. Uh, Antioch itself uh, was a bit of a diverse city. Uh, a lot of the early church movement uh, was primarily Jewish for a long time. Uh, and as it, it got into Antioch, it became a bit more blended. Uh, you ended up with Gentiles and Jews worshiping together, which is why in Antioch it, becomes, it gets a new name. Uh, because up to that point, you would be like, hey, these are just Jews that believe the Messiah came. But once it's Jews and Gentiles together, you couldn't just say they're all Jews. And so um, they get called Christian for the first time in Antioch because you had this new community of people worshiping together. Um, and so uh, let's keep going. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Now, it's an important point in Peter's life. Uh, in the book of Acts, you have this really significant moment in, in Peter's journey. He is, uh, at this point, as I said, the early church was primarily Jewish, uh, almost exclusively, uh, at, at, Jesus, or at Peter's point in the story. And uh, Peter's having sort of a prayer time on a roof, and God ultimately shows up in a vision. He lets down this mat that has all sorts of foods that, uh, according to Torah, that you weren't allowed to eat. Uh, it happens three times. All three times, Peter's like, I can't eat that, God. And ultimately, uh, Paul, Peter wrestles with what this vision means, because God would go on to tell him, don't call anything unclean that I've declared clean. 
And Peter's application of this whole message is um, related to these Gentiles who are coming into the faith, these Gentiles who seem to be having the Holy Spirit do something in their lives. And Peter comes to terms with the fact that this new movement of God is going to be Jews and Gentiles all being part of this new community, this new family. It becomes something so important that they have a whole council to vote on it, like good old Presbyterians. And so uh, they meet together to decide that, yes, God is doing this tremendous work. We can't get in the way of the way that God is bringing Jews and Gentiles together. Um, And and so that was part of the storyline. So at one point, he was eating with Gentiles. He was sharing in an ancient world of honor, shame, of, of hospitality, culture, who you share a table with communicated so much. Uh, so even in Roman Greco culture, status was oriented around what room you're in and what table at certain times. Uh, and in a Jewish culture, it, it all said, who am I actually in fellowship with? Uh, who is clean? Who's on the inside? Who's on the outside? And so at some point, Peter had come to terms with me and my Gentile brethren are one. We were sharing the table together. But these certain men from James, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Uh, circumcision I hate the word party. It just sounds funny in the sentence, um, but I don't want to go to a circumcision party. Uh, <laughs> but the circumcision, this community of people, this sort of group uh, of Jews who um, were saying, look, Jesus is Jewish. He's He's the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. And for Gentiles, for you guys to follow him, you still have to adhere to the Torah that particularly marked around things like food and circumcision. And we can see why Peter would sort of buy into some of this. Like, and I'm sure they pressured Peter. I'm sure they um, were probably aggressive about some of it. And what had become a sign of unity, a shared table meal together, became a sign of their disunity. And a line was drawn saying, no, in order to be Christian, you have to believe in Jesus and you have to be circumcised and you have to only eat with certain people. And that is the definition of Christianity and attendance on Sunday and speaking in tongues and second baptism and affirmation of a certain theological framework of understanding. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, said even Barnabas, poor Barnabas, was led astray by their hypocrisy when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified." And Paul will go on to unpack this argument that much more. Galatians is a tough book. It's really hard to interpret. There's really a lot of questions around who's talking to who. But he will eventually sum up his argument, I would argue, by chapter 6. And he comes around and he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And I would argue that that sums up four chapters of arguments. That at some point they had drawn lines around circumcision. Around diet. Perhaps there's even a new group who's saying, no, uncircumcision is the thing to do. But but Paul's point is going, look, these lines are not the thing. What what matters is new creation. What mattered to Paul was a unified table where Jews and Gentiles were were having a a sort of love feast, a, a, a massive meal celebration together. That was the drive of what Paul was after. And before you think I'm sort of 
misusing Paul here, that is central to almost all of Paul's letters. Like even if we go in order, the book of Romans, Jews, Gentiles, ultimately Paul sort of points out that both are, are uh, condemned, that both are, are sinful and broken, and ultimately Jesus had to die for both, that they're one community to be redeemed. And he paints this beautiful picture of how that redemption goes about. And eventually, as Paul starts making the application of all of that theological framework, his application is, so stop judging one another. Quit worrying about who's celebrating what holiday and who's celebrating another holiday, and whether that's inside or outside. Quit worrying about what diet and food everybody's eating, because some people have disconvictions some people that have that conviction, just be unified as a people. Learn to love one another as you would love your neighbor. That's the application for, for the book of Romans. Or 1 Corinthians, where you have a church that's just jacked up and disagreeing on a whole lot of different things, and, and it's all over the place. And as he starts getting towards the tail end of the book, he starts getting into some practicals, and he talks about this table. He talks about the communion table. He says, look, some of you show up early, and you eat a whole bunch of things, and then those who are hungry are left out, and you're being divisive about the very thing that's supposed to be uniting, so discern the table, discern the body, discern the church. And, and then he'll go on to all the gifts and how everybody's using that to stratify themselves. He says, look, love is the central thing here, and if you don't learn to love each other. Everything else is noise and gongs and symbols and everything else. That love is the centerpiece of how you guys are to be a community together. Or Ephesians, let's just keep going. The book of Ephesians, you end up with uh, two different groups of Jews and Gentiles once again. And Paul's like, no, what Jesus tore down, is he tore down dividing laws so that you guys would be this whole one new humanity. And ultimately his call for them is to be unified, that they would be of one faith and one heart and one baptism and of one Jesus, that that would be the central thing about them. And it wasn't to set up all right, here are all the lines that make you inside or outside. It was a call back to Jesus and to be unified. It's all over Paul. It's all over the early church. So what I want to unpack for the rest of this time um, is based upon the work of probably more Paul Hebert. He was a missiologist uh, in the church uh, through a while ago, but um, he kind of looked at how communities are formed and how communities define themselves uh, and used um, mathematics to do that. Uh, he used set theory and how set theories work of who is inside and who is outside and how that works. Uh, and Mark D. Baker has a follow-up work looking at it all called Center Set Church. Uh, if you do want to dive in further to anything I teach today, I am just teaching the starting point of Mark Baker's book. But the question that becomes uh, on the table is, how do we, what are the markers for who is in and who is out? How do we define even a Christian? If they prayed a prayer, they were baptized. If they go to church or not, do they give? Do they pray? Are they in a small group? Are they baptized by the Holy Spirit? What is the marker then? What becomes the clear line? And as I said, I think a lot of us probably experience different versions of church. And even some of the sort of deconstruction, disillusionment stuff is sometimes in how we've experienced those things. And in the sets that um, Hebert talks about, there's a bounded set, there's a fuzzy set, and then there's a center set, which we'll talk about all three. Bounded sets are um, often a clear static boundary line that allows for a uniform definition of who's in the group. Uh, unity sort of adds uniformity. Uh, it's applied to everyone. It often gives a lot of clarity and security for those who are in, um, but at, at times the fruit of it, and we'll talk about this, kind of leads to superiority or judgmentalism. It's a set of essential characteristics that everyone must share in order to be a part of the group. Now, at the end of the day, it's a neutral thing, right? Like Costco is a bounded set, right? In order to get in, you have to flash your little card, and the only people that can participate in what is Costco are people with the card. 
Now, once again, that can lead to judgmentalism. So some people are like, oh, you don't have a Costco card? Um, but it's, it's that experience. And it doesn't, mean no, uh, it, it doesn't mean boundaries are bad. I want to be very clear as we talk about this today. Boundaries are good. They're healthy. It's what we do with the boundaries that really matters. And how much we focus on the boundaries or don't focus on the boundaries. That is so much about what I'm going to talk about today. Um, I'm going to use soccer as an example. Uh, a, because it's World Cup season, which is awesome. And, and, and the U.S. better win on Tuesday. And B, because Mark Baker literally uses soccer as his analogies. Um, a bounded soccer game or a, a participation in bounded soccer looks like this. It's, it's the league. And you have to try out. You have to demonstrate a certain amount of ability. You have to be maybe invited in. You have to accept that. You have to pay some dues. You have to get a uniform. Not everyone is accepted in, but everybody ultimately looks the same. There's a uniformity to it. That's a bounded soccer team. Remember, that's neutral. It's just soccer. Bounded sets are clearly defined by all the boundaries that exist. Fuzzy sets, um, which is the opposite of often bounded sets, is to erase all the lines, to not have any definition in the group. And we can use soccer as an example again. So as a kid, I would go to summer camp. If you go to summer camp, sometimes there's like free play time uh, or on recess or something like that. And guess what? There's usually multiple sports going on. There's some soccer being happening on the field. Maybe some kids are over here playing football. There's a couple of kids over here playing frisbee. And it's a little bit chaotic. And you never know who's really in or who's not. Some people just leave the game. Some people just join the game in the middle of it. And then uh, it's all over the place. It's just messy. And, and, and it's a bit of chaos. You never know what's going on. It's purposely vague. And sometimes fuzzy's good, but sometimes it could be really bad. But at the end of the day, it's also important to note that both fuzzy and bounded sets focus on lines. The bounded one uh, will focus on how we draw the lines and set all the rules so no one is in. And the fuzzy set will often be focused on not having lines. But the focus is still there. It's the fact that there are no lines. It's not putting a focus anywhere else but the fact that there's really just not any lines here. Center sets, I would argue, might be a little bit more like a well. And, and we could put the cross in the middle or something else, but for, for, um, for a helpful analogy, we'll talk about a well. There's people moving in towards the well or out towards the well or away from the well. The center sets have a directional, relational basis of evaluation. In a center set, everything relates to the center rather than the boundaries or the lines. The boundaries and lines don't become the main focus. The group isn't made up of people that all certainly share certain characteristics. The group is made up by people who are turned towards the center regardless of how close they are to it. So ultimately, just the orientation is what defines. So take the soccer example. A bounded set, as I said, would be like the league with all the rules and boundaries of exactly who is in and who is out. The fuzzy set is chaos and a bunch of kids doing whatever they want. The center set would be like if I were to send an email to all my friends saying, hey, at 3 o'clock on this particular day, we're going to play soccer on the fields. And the people that show up for the soccer game are part of the group. They're the people who are playing soccer. And at the center is what? Soccer. Like, that's what we said. This is what we're here to do. But there's not a test of ability. There's not uh, anything you have to pay. You don't have to wear a uniform, per se. It's invitational, and it's relational. You just have to show up. And if you're part of the group that shows up, you're, you're part of the group. And contrary to the fuzzy group, it has a clear center. It's 
soccer. And if you show up and you want to play rugby, well, the group's going to look at you and going, well, we, we agreed to play soccer. That's what we're going to be doing today. Like, if you want to go play rugby, there's somewhere else to go play rugby. That's, we're here to play soccer. The center is the fact we're playing soccer. Now, there's not any boundaries other than that. You're welcome to show up and play. And if you do, you're part of the group. Even if, like, you're a terrible soccer player. Even if it's your first day out trying soccer and you don't know any of the rules, if you're there to show up and say, you know what, I want to learn, I want to be here for soccer, then great, you're in. You're part of the group. And some people may be far from the center and moving towards it. So some people may have no abilities, no understanding of soccer, but yet they want to go towards it. And some people might show up who know soccer in and out and are tremendous athletes, but they just want to go play something else. And those are big differences. And one is saying, I'm here for the thing that we're focused on, the center. And another is saying, no. But the clarity is we're saying, no, we're playing soccer. This is what we're doing. And if people show up to draw some hard lines of who's in and out, someone's like, I'm not going to play soccer with that guy. Well, they're creating their own boundaries, not, not the group. It's the individual who sets those own boundaries. And what Hybert does is start applying this whole analogy to the church of the invitational nature of saying, look, come to the well. Come to see the beauty of Jesus. And we are going to be a community oriented towards that. And I understand this whole sermon is going to have, but what about, what about, what about this? What about that? And read the book, I guess. <laughs> but I want to talk about this, this, how the churches live out those three scenarios. There's, uh, I would argue, bounded churches. They would draw lines to distinguish insiders from outsiders, Christians from non-Christian, perhaps, true Christians from mediocre Christians. The line generally consists of a particular set of doctrinal beliefs. Here's the doctrine you have to believe here. And often, um, must, uh, often get associated with certain visible behaviors. Right? Have you been circumcised? Are you believing a certain understanding of who you can or can't eat with? Right? Those are all bounded questions. Uh, are, have, have you done this action? Have you been baptized? Have you done certain things? There's a certain, uh, certain ways to be bounded. And it manifests in both conservative and liberal ways, which are lines drawn on both sides, and we'll cover some of that as we go. And there's fuzzy churches. In a world of tolerance as a supreme value, and with relativism and individualism being through the roof, fuzzy churches are common. And they can be found in a lot of different formats. I would argue that like a lot of megachurches tend to function as a fuzzy church. They tend to not, some of the convictions are laissez-faire, you kind of don't know where they stand. Sermons can be kind of therapeutic more than they are conviction-based uh, at times uh, until you actually want to lead in that church and then suddenly all the boundaries start showing up. Or there's sometimes more liberal churches, um, although sometimes in more liberal churches they're secretly bounded without knowing it. And then center church. And they would say, yes, God at the center, which I know all three groups would say. I'm not, I'm not a fool to think like bounded churches sit there going, we're all the boundaries. No, they, they would say Jesus is the center. And some of the fuzzy churches would say Jesus is the center. It's just what we do once again with boundaries and the edges that matter. And so um, it's the question of orientation. To define a group by, the, at first, the orientation towards Jesus and sometimes we would call that conversion, that initial step of going, you know what, I'm, I'm interested in this Jesus. I want to know more about this Jesus. I'm interested in following Jesus. I, I want to ask more questions. There's unity about being oriented towards the center, 
even though people are going to be in very different places in maturity and nearness to Jesus and their own sanctification. I think the beauty of the well kind of plays out here, uh, particularly in, like, take, take Australia. If you're in the outback of Australia, some of the farmers' lands are so big in the outback that they actually don't make fences or maintain them because they're just too expensive to do. It's just too large of a tract of land to do that with. So instead, what they've learned is to dig wells. And their cattle may roam, but they never roam far because they must keep returning to the well to drink water. And I would argue that that becomes such an interesting picture that instead of building fences and walls, we start becoming a church that sees the beauty in digging the well, saying, here is Jesus. If you're thirsty, here's Jesus. I'm not going to worry all about the boundaries and the fences all the time. We're going to make sure that we keep Jesus at the front and center. And so um, I want to play out how these churches kind of do things, how they evaluate discipleship, how they talk about discipline, perhaps, um, as we unpack. I hope to be relatively brief, but Baker does go into some of this. Like the evaluation. Who, who really is a Christian? Are they a disciple? Bounded churches will often just look to the lines. Are they on this side of the line or that side of the line? Have they, have they done the, the minimum requirements that we expect them to do and behave in a certain way? That's, that's the orientation. That's, that's, the, that's the criteria. Uh, centered um, would, would speak about the orientation towards Jesus. And as I said, there's some nuance to that. Because Jesus' ministry is full of this whole conversation. You have a whole lot of people that are around Jesus who, from all intents and purposes, their outside life looks incredibly spiritual. They seem to be in love with Yahweh uh, from what, what you can tell from their practices. But Jesus comes along, and they are ultimately the people that seem the farthest from who, what is God actually like. And the people who seem to be moving away from what Jesus is actually calling them to be. And then there's people who are so on the outside in the story who are tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and all sorts of different things. And they're the ones who are showing up who are oriented to Jesus in the storyline. And so that's the question at hand to me more than, because guess what? Those prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners are probably not going to have all the externals of what it looks like to be a faithful Jew when the Pharisees certainly would have. And so it becomes a question of how do we measure, how do we evaluate, what is our criteria? In a fuzzy church, there's really often not a center to evaluate the criteria out of anyways, and so it becomes just about impossible to go who's in or who's out. And this was Paul in Galatia. He spoke in this letter, and he's not focused on the boundaries. He, he has a problem with the boundary drawing, and, and he sort of looks to the center in the process. He actually speaks so little of the boundaries versus the new creation faith that they share. He says, no, it is new creation dynamics. It is justification by faith. That is the center piece of this all. And center-sent churches spend a lot of time and energy, as they should, defining the center of the whole thing. And I think Paul does that time and time again and allows the complexity of relationship to the center. Because that's what everyone in this room has a different relationship with Jesus. A different level of maturity in that process, a different, different fire or lack thereof at this season and this moment in life. Sometimes we're killing it. Sometimes we're wondering if we even want to stay in the fight. And that's okay. That's not a reason to be out or in at a church. When it comes to spiritual maturity, bounded churches can, um, I would argue, learn performative action that may not actually reflect the heart of someone. 
that you can read your Bible, you can pray, you can do some of the spiritual disciplines, and you can still be a horrible person on the inside. You just can. Center churches would communally connect uh, to maturity. One of the beauties of uh, the, the diagram, or one of the things lacking in the diagram, is how much the arrows actually affect the other arrows. Um, and we'll talk about the sort of communal nature of how this all works out, but that we would be people-oriented, and there would be almost like a magnetic pull to how we orient each other to the center, and how we mature together. When it comes to group identity, I think bounded churches are often defined about how they exclude others. Uh, sort of preaching often comes against another domination, another group, another world, sort of going here is the line, there are the outsiders, we're the insiders. The center church, I would argue, doesn't have to preach against anything. It just needs to keep holding Jesus up at the center. This is the center of who we're supposed to be. And I realize I'm right now critiquing all the other things. But anyways, uh, fuzzy church could be against line drawing altogether, but it often doesn't then define what we're actually for. It becomes so vague and so morally therapeutic at times, it doesn't say, here is what we're chasing after. It can just be sort of fuzzy, everybody's welcome in a, in a very vague sense of that. It's hardly a New Testament picture of the church. Even when it describes the journey of discipleship, the bounded church will have a, sometimes a way of communicating uh, that you've arrived, Right? You've met all these sets of criteria, so you're now on the inside. Now, just don't violate that. Ride it out. Don't step outside the boundaries. And once you've met the requirements of just about staying in. I think the center church can communicate that we are all in process together. And I think marriage becomes the, the easiest metaphor to explain this in. So take a bounded view of marriage. This is a bounded view of marriage. I went to the justice or pastor. I said the words... I have a ring, which today I don't. Mine broke last night. Um, it's very fitting that I'm preaching on this um, while filling the baptistry. Um, but I have a ring, I have a certificate. In a bounded way, I'd say that, that is marriage. That, I'm married. The fuzzy view of marriage would be like, well, we just live together. We're committed to each other in our hearts. It's totally fine. And it's, there's no lines. There's no clarity on a whole lot. The center view we say, yeah, we, we did the thing in the ceremony, and that was a great starting point. But the fact that I wear a ring or have a certificate, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm married. What it means to be married is that I'm progressively orienting my life around the commitment I have to this other person. That I'm not in an open marriage, so I'm not pursuing other, other wives or, or spouses that have a relational orientation. This is the person. Here I go. And it's, it's bigger than the date night or the amount I pray together or anything like that. Because I can do all those things and still not love and cherish my wife. It's bigger than that. And hear me, like for so many of us, when we walk out on our wedding day, we don't have a clue what it actually means to be a husband and wife. We just don't. That's what happens when you get married. It's going to be a long journey of peaks and valleys and moments of real intimate connection and moments of lack of sometimes in that connection. And, and that's just the process. It's all of it. And the fascinating thing is, this is one of the primary metaphors that Jesus gives for his church is this. It's like the mystery of marriage is unpacked and the fact that, that God is a faithful God who welcomes us in and we are all the other end of that spectrum going, all right, sometimes I'm on fire in this marriage, sometimes I'm lazy in this marriage, sometimes I'm far from Jesus, sometimes I'm near Jesus, sometimes I'm walking away, sometimes I'm walking towards all of it. And it allows for all sorts of different pictures of belief. Now hear me, obviously doctrine matters. 
If you've been here enough, you know that this is true. Doctrine matters for us. Teaching, bad teaching is a problem. But good teaching plays a part of clarifying what the center actually is. And there's a difference. I would argue bounded churches would say, you have to believe X, Y, and Z to be a part of this group. You have to affirm all of these things. But center churches will go on to say, yes, you can say yes to Jesus and still have a whole lot wrong. Like I said, the day I got married, I didn't know what it was like to be married. But that day I committed to orient my life around my wife, away from any other opportunities relationally and commit to her, that that was the center. Now, as part of that process, all other stuff has taken years to work on. My own selfishness in my marriage has taken years. My own devotion towards my wife takes years to learn. My love or commitment or how much I sacrifice or don't sacrifice for her, that has taken years. And guess what? We all have different orderings of our lives. For you, those that are married in this room, there's a different ordering to all of that for each of us. God may work on your selfishness in the first three years of your marriage, and it may not come to the 15th year of my marriage, right? Like, it's just different. Everybody has different parts of that journey of sanctification growing together in our relationship with the one we're married to. And our relationship with God is not any different. And so just looking at beliefs and behaviors is not necessarily a helpful indicator of healthy marriage. It's not a healthy indicator sometimes of even a healthy faith. Because guess what? Psychopaths are really good at pretending And so are each of us. We're really good at making things look good. And bounded churches limit authenticity because you worry that if you question the boundaries that you can be excluded at any given moment. And center churches give great permission to wonder, explore, doubt, and and it doesn't define whether you're in and out. It's not about your performance any given one day or any given season. Just like my marriage. Like some days, gosh, I'm a crummy husband. And some days I'm killing it. I'm doing a great job. Now, I hope I have good, more good days than bad days. But if you were to take a snapshot of my marriage at any given season, who knows what you're going to see. And it doesn't change that I'm still oriented towards my wife. Even in the hard, harsh seasons when I'm not feeling it. And this is where all the mess comes in. Like, Why would we exclude someone from a group who is turning towards Jesus, who's really coming to faith, but at this point, they don't see the Bible all as the word of God? Why would we force them to say, no, for you to be here, you have to affirm that? Why would we make it a rule to rule them out? I'm going to get more controversial. Why would we exclude people who may not be heteronormative in their sexuality? Maybe their experiences in the church have all been negative up to this point. And why would we exclude someone who may just be beginning their journey of opening up to Jesus? And and we approach them sometimes and have a statement that says, just so you know, if you show up here, you can't do this here. you got to stop right now. Stop participating in it. Oh, and by the way, if you do come, we'll take your money. But you can't participate in anything else. Now, it's not, don't hear me say that there's not eventually a call for change, repentance, and how we do that over the course of time? Absolutely. But I think too often it's like, here's a line right from the get-go. And we're trying to order people's sanctification, or we force them to just hide what they're struggling with. Do we draw the same lines around people's lusts in their hearts? Because Jesus has pretty harsh words about that too. Pornography. And if we did draw those harsh lines saying, hey, you can't be a part of this fellowship if you're participating in this, 
How many of us are actually going to confess our struggles then? Because we'd be so worried that we'd be on the other side of the boundaries in the process. But that would be consistent. Bounded churches, I would argue, often focus on the externals. And Jesus was so clear in his teachings, so clear. From the woes of the Pharisees to the Sermon on the Mount, hey, you guys wash the outside of the cup all the time, but the inside is just filthy. You tithe correctly, but you neglect compassion, mercy. You've heard it said that the outward adherence to the law is what matters, but I say it's your heart. And Jesus constantly is after that. And once again, it's conservative and progressive too. It follows all different ends of the spectrum. That's why there's so much pressure to virtue signal in this sort of bounded versus fuzzy set world. It doesn't matter if you actually do anything about racism or really do care about it, but you have to appear anti-racist. It doesn't matter if you actually do anything about abortion or really care about it, you have to appear anti-abortion. And we virtue signal to keep up appearances because that's what bounded communities ultimately produce. It's the fruit. The fruit of boundedness often is lines with shame and guilt at their helm. It's like Galatians 2. It's, it's, it's the shame that the Judaizers brought to Peter, going, you can't do that. How dare you? Peter's like, okay. And he was shamed into a whole different way of living. It's lines that exclude. Not just internal judgment, but you're not welcome. And they'll never say it explicitly. Most bounded churches aren't explicit to say, hey, you're not welcome here. But they'll subvert that and say it in a whole load of other ways. And there's not enough to just keep the boundary. You have to be seen keeping the boundary. It's a struggle. It's a struggle to truly love because that practice, it injures both the excluded and it's harmful to the excluders themselves too because they're not following in line with Jesus. And bounded churches will often preach a lot of grace but live by a totally different standard. And if you live on the boundaries, it's really hard not to focus on the externals. It's not about how well I love my wife. It's about whether or not I kept a date night, right? In fuzzy church, is the other end of things, where tolerance is the fruit, but it's a weaker form of the Christian virtue of love itself. No one loves each other to actually speak legitimate truth to each other. As one, one commentator calls it, it's a gentle conspiracy of niceness. And it's self-help and therapeutic often. Our dreams, our own goals for our life, it's often self-seeking, self-affirming. Great permission for everyone to just follow their own journeys until someone else's self-expression conflicts with your own self-expression, and that can cause problems. And it's often just wandering. It's a lot of wandering in fuzzy churches. It's exploring but never finding. It's deconstructing but never reconstructing. And it's often a great lie that you can be part of a church community while staying as your own totally autonomy. It's just a lie. That's, that's sold by a lot of churches right now. Being like, come be a part of our community, but you can do you. It's like those two things are actually in conflict with each other. Because community requires us to be shoulder to shoulder with those who are going to have a different understanding of the world from us, and it's going to come in conflict. The center church allows for uneven discipleship and conversion. So as I said, people can be from any spot in their journey, and we can be okay with that. While people are super immature, super people are very mature, and we can live together as a community. There's permission to question and doubt. There's some freedom there to wander um, and, and to ask really hard, complicated questions. 
And unlike the fuzzy, it does have the ability to define this is the center and this is what's consistent with the center. Uh, Church discipline plays out in these churches differently. Uh, The bounded church is often focused on the violation of the boundary line itself. There's often not a lot of room for failure. It's consistently reinforcing the boundary line. Um, There's often high judgment uh, and judgment in the bad sense. There's good judgment and bad judgment. We'll deal with that when we deal with Matthew. A judgment that condemns others by their external behavior rather than what's actually going on in their heart. And it sometimes gets phrased as not that that action was wrong, but that you were wrong. It often puts the whole identity on the person. Only focus on externals. Uh, We even see this in sort of the megachurch pastor world over the last decade, that gosh, you can be a selfish and prideful and mean pastor. But as long as you haven't had an affair, and as long as you keep the, 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 the seats full and the money rolling in, and once in a while have to scream over and over that it's all about Jesus, you're fine. Until recently, when some of that has finally changed. And there are certain sins that become elevated, and there's an ignoring of other sins, that the means uh, justifies the end, and the means are corrupt, but the end is still good. We can celebrate that. Often in bounded worlds, the how far is too far is part of the conversation. So this is like youth ministry 101. It's a bounded understanding of things. Because as long as I'm not crossing the line, none of my deeper issues of my heart have to be addressed. As long as I'm not doing as what I think one of the, one of the terms that was used when I first became a Christian, it's heavy petting in my relationship, then it's fine. And Jesus comes along and says, no. You guys say don't do the physical act of murder, but I say it begins in your heart. You guys say don't do the physical act of adultery, but I say it begins in your heart. And so bounded churches will do universal applications of the same discipleship process. And it often leads not to restoration, but shame, and often teaches people to hide or pretend. Teach people not to actually talk about their struggles with sin, but often to hide it. And we even see this in parenting. It's like moralistic parenting. We we teach kids, here are all the lines and boundaries, don't cross them. And then at 18, we send them off where there's no more a bounded community and see what happens. Versus teaching kids to actually grow and understand the center. And I understand there's a critique of the bounded church, or a critique of the center church by the bounded groups. They'll they'll point to things like 1 Corinthians 5, where uh, this person was removed from their community and stuff like that. Okay, let me use that one as an example. So in Paul's churches, Paul's churches are messy, jacked-up collection of people. They just are. Just to give you an example, there's people eating at idol feasts. There's people jockeying for spiritual eliteness. There's Gnosticism permeating the church. There's people picking their favorite preachers and following them. And there's people relationally infighting. There's ethnic divisions all over the place in the churches. They're fighting over which holidays to celebrate, which days to do things. They're fighting over a whole lot of stuff. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of mess within the life of the church. And the only one that finally gets a conversation of Paul going, look, this is crossing a boundary. The only one to finally get that has two key descriptors as part of it, too. One, what was happening was so bad that even the Gentile world itself outside the church goes, hey, that's really jacked up. And secondly, the whole community itself was celebrating this like incestual relationship that was going on in the church, celebrating it, saying this is a work of God, this is what grace does, this is amazing. And Paul goes, okay, hold on. At some point, there's boundaries. And that is a boundary. And what you guys are doing are undermining the gospel and celebrating the sin. What you guys are doing, the rest of the world looks on and goes, mm, that's not okay. And so there was a boundary. 
But to use that, out of all the mess of all of Paul's letters of who is in and who is out, he's constantly not pushing people out. This one example of where he does has all these criteria. So if we want to do that for any of the sins, we can do that. So next time somebody is flagrantly living in sin and we, both the outside world thinks it's an abomination and the rest of us are going, this is amazing, then yes, we should have an action of discipline there. So let me know if that happens. So, fuzzy. So discipline in a fuzzy church, it doesn't exist, right? Or maybe they're fuzzy on certain issues. Sometimes it's around like social justice or race or something like that. Like you have to be about this, otherwise you can't be here. Often it's about avoiding anybody, uh, making feel anybody feel bad about themselves. It's a group therapeutic process. Once again, it often does, only deals with symptoms and it never actually deals with heart and transformation. Because loving confrontation is necessary. If you're a good friend, if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you're loving confrontation is part of relational life. It's healthy. And to totally avoid it is not doing any good for everybody. But the center church, every discipline is dealt with individually. We stay away from broad rules and processes because the Bible even does that, right? So Ten Commandments, one of those is do not bear false witness, which comes in the book of Exodus. What happens in the first chapter of Exodus is a bunch of women who go, yeah, these Jewish women are having babies too quickly. Uh, You guys can't kill them all. Like, they bear false witness to save the Israelites in the opening chapter of the book. Or Rahab comes along and hides a bunch of spies and has to lie about it in, in order to ultimately save them. And she's held up as a hero in doing so. And so sometimes putting those lines and saying, all the time, this is how it applies, just doesn't actually work in individual people's experiences. Now, like, like I said, boundaries are okay. But if you use those universally to say who's in and who's out, that, once again, is a problem. So like when someone has anger, we can relationally, individually talk about that. Because that's usually a fruit issue. It's a bad fruit. And individually, then we can dive down and go, okay, let's talk about what's going on. Let's talk about your experiences growing up. Let's talk about how anger was dealt with in your family. Let's talk about your work stress that is driving you insane right now. Let's talk about all these factors that can lead to that fruit. As opposed to going, hey, you can't be angry. Jesus, that's not Christ-like. It's not helpful. It's not transformative, at least. That we are messy and complex, and it takes a long time to do these sort of things. None of us have arrived. We're all being sanctified in various ways, and we keep Jesus at the center, no matter how long it takes. It's invitational. It's not manipulating or shaming or compelling. Other than Jesus' confrontation with religious leaders, his practice was often invitational. Even with them, it was often invitational. So even his woes to the Pharisees, he's utilizing a prophetic practice from Isaiah to do so. But take Luke 15. It's an amazingly invitational passage. Three stories. One's about the lost sheep, one's about a lost coin, and then eventually um, the prodigal son story. Now, once again, the prodigal son story is neither fuzzy nor um, bounded. So the son runs away. The father speaks in very not fuzzy terms. My son is dead to me. My son, like, he's gone. Which is a line on some level. So it's drawing some sense of lines or some sense of this is true, the relationship with the father, this relationship has been lost. But then he returns. It's amazing. The father restores him. And the point of the prodigal son story is actually for the Pharisees, who are the main audience of the story. And the point of it at the end is him inviting his older brother 
who doesn't really like that the father welcomed the son into the storyline and, and welcomed him back and hugged him and welcomed him into the family again. And the older brother's on the outside. And the father does what? He goes out to the older brother and says, look, everything I have is yours. Come, let's celebrate together what the kind of, the kind of father I am as welcoming my, my lost son home. And I think very much this is that picture. It's saying, Pharisees, hey, you're invited to come play soccer. And the soccer game might be messy, and there's people that are of all different abilities, and you might be one of the strongest soccer players on the team, and you might get frustrated that other people don't have as much ability as you do. That might happen. But hey, it's going to be fun. So come join the party. We're playing soccer. And it invites. And we can't make someone repent. But we can, by invitation, by kindness, and by truth, invite them into the repentance that God may actually produce in them, the same way that God does, which is by his kindness. Center Set offers relational discernment instead of judgment. Like I said, it's really hard, actually, to probably tell if someone's oriented towards Jesus. It's a heart posture. But in a long, involved relationship with someone, we can actually probably tell pretty well. Right? Like, we can have good judgment of actions and not just the person. Because we've been able to see the seasons where things are strong versus the seasons where things are weak. In relationship and trust, you're able to speak into those things. Guess what? I don't take a lot of criticism for people I have no relationship with. It's just not helpful. There's so much context, there's so much nuance, there's so much highs and lows of things that it just isn't, I'm not going to listen to a lot of it. But if someone near and dear to me goes, hey, I see this in your life right now and I think it might be damaging to you, I'm going to listen to that. It produces wisdom instead of rules. It's a much more different conversation about sin and decision making to be center set. It's helpful when people discern rather than just simply set a hard line. Like, this is the difference between immaturity and maturity for my kids. When they're little, yes, hard lines. Hey, don't touch that. It's hot, right? But as they grow, my job as a parent is to actually teach them wisdom to discern things as opposed to setting hard lines all the time of what is the right thing or wrong thing. Like, as they get older, i got to teach them the wisdom. God's designed for sexuality. Not, don't, don't sleep with anybody. No, let's talk about how God has designed things. Let's talk about wisdom in these decisions. Wisdom related to alcohol. Wisdom related to these, these things that, that may play out. So I can equip them to be outside of my house. And to explore rather than pronounce, there's an opportunity to sit with people and the questions and discovery. If Jesus really is the truth and the way in life, then we should feel incredibly comfortable with people seeking and asking questions about what is true particularly if it's oriented towards Jesus still. As Baker will go on to say, by discerning group membership through people's trajectories and their relationship with the center, the center church remedies the problems that motivate a fuzzy church to blur boundaries while also avoiding the negative fruit that grows out of fuzzy and bounded approaches. The center paradigm provides the possibility of conversion and repentance, articulates what is appropriate and inappropriate, and establishes a standard, the center, and calls people to a different way of living. And this is what Paul did in Antioch. He does not respond to the lawn drying of, of, the, of the Judaizers with a fuzzy response, nor does he do it with a boundary response. He simply says, they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And more literally translated into Greek, they were not walking straight towards the truth of the gospel. 
He points our eyes towards Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished. He goes into a whole conversation around justification. This is by faith. God has saved those by faith and not by any lines and boundaries and additions to that. If we add to that, we're doing a wrong to the gospel. And Paul dug a well. And he wrote to the Galatians to stay near the well of Jesus. And drink the life-giving water. And guess what? If you build a church that way, those, it will attract the thirsty people who want, long to be transformed through Jesus' life. And you set the center. So it's important that we define the center. That Jesus was a first-century Jewish Messiah who preached the kingdom of God. But he ended up not being just the king of the Jews. He ended up being the king of the universe itself. And his kingdom, in many ways, was a reversal of so many things. And it's not so much about going to, as Trey preached on, it's not so much about going to heaven. It was about heaven coming to earth. The kingdom is near and has taken the consequences of the fall of sin and disorder and abuse and brokenness and death and begins to reverse that process. And he invites people into that process itself by repentance and faith. And this new kingdom causes conflict with the kingdoms of this world and because they're just not the same. And Jesus reveals um, uh, himself, reveals his father himself being God, and, and he reveals what the Godhead is actually like. So if you want to understand uh, what, what God is, as, as Colossians would say, the, the manifestation, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And so we don't define Jesus through Paul. We define Paul through Jesus. We don't define the, Jesus through the Torah. We use the Torah to help, def, or use Jesus to help interpret the Torah. All those things all play a role because Jesus is the centerpiece of it all and the central uh, figure that we would all look to. And Jesus accomplishes his greatest work by taking the form of a servant. The central action of it all is the cross. He's being willing willing to be shamed and to die a criminal's death because his kingdom is not about political power. It's not about triumph. It's not about position. It's about getting low. It's about being last. It's about forgiving those who forgive you. It's about enemy love. It's about humility. And he's restoring. In the end, he holds the keys to the final judgment. We don't. And he's restoring all things to the way they should be. He's going to cast out what he needs to cast out. And that which is part of his new creation will be fully restored to his kingdom, and and his kingdom will finally be here, a new heaven and a new earth. That is the center, right? And we can sit here and go, yeah, let's keep pointing towards that. And at some point, yes, I understand, some may have critiques. All right, is that like discipleship and commitment light to just focus on Jesus and everybody could be a mess on their journey? Shouldn't we demand more of people? Hear me. Facing and heading towards Jesus, our center, will have significant implications of how we live out our lives. And a group of Christians who are centered on Jesus in a center church will look radically different than others in societies. And as I said, I hope I pointed out that bounded churches will have affinity towards behavior modification rather than actual communal transformation where center churches, I would argue, facilitate a profound heart change. And hear me very clearly. This is a much harder way of doing church. Bounded is easy. It's very clear. It's very defined. It requires less investment in terms of relationship and walking with people and getting to know people. This is messier. It will require more of us. And we are all dependent upon each other to keep us oriented towards Jesus. That's why life groups matter. That's why community matters. That's why all these things matter. It's that we would be around each other and in the orbit of Jesus and people and the Holy Spirit and to say, let's see what happens. So that's why we have 
partnership or membership in this church. That's why we have life groups. That's why we have these things. So that we can be in this fight together. That we would keep orienting each other back to Jesus as a community because we need it. We're not interested in being fuzzy. We're interested in the center. We're not interested in the boundaries. Who defines who's in, who's out. Because I think Jesus came as part of his work was to tear them down. Now, all boundaries aren't bad. And sometimes we'll define some of those as we go. But my hope is to be a church that sets us in this path of what it looks like to be a centered church heading towards Jesus as the well for all of us to drink from. Because all of us who are burdened and heavy laden, he welcomes to take up his easy yoke. And I don't know what your heavy yoke looks like. I don't know how quickly you're going to do that. I don't know how fast your death to self is going to be. But we can keep our eyes oriented towards Jesus. And we do that at the communion table. Which, once again, is a reiteration of this whole thing. The early church probably had more of like a celebration meal. They weren't often very big. They were house churches. And it was a place where Jews and Gentiles actually dined together. It's a place where women dine at the same table as men, which communally was often not practiced. It's a place where a, a bondservant or slave and those who are freed would sit down together and celebrate a meal together. Or barbarians and Scythians would sit down. And the whole world would be like, what is going on? Because Jesus tore down a wall and has created a new humanity built upon the unity of his people by faith and faith alone. And we can come to this table with Democrats and Republicans and people who are heterosexually sexually normative and those who are still in process wondering where they fit on anything. Those who are mature in their faith, those who aren't, those who have strong convictions about things, those who are, love the gray area of faith. And we can come to this table. And I know, like, I know some of the stuff I've preached about. For those of you who are very black and white people, like this sermon series is like, gosh, just end it. Because I love the gray. I just feel so comfortable in the gray. And, but this is a table where the gray and the black and white can come together and go, yes. Jesus has very straightforward things that he says. Paul has very straightforward things that he has. And Jesus and Paul also have some vague things to say. We can worship together. Because Jesus is still the well. And so uh, let me set up this table as we celebrate what Jesus accomplished too. Because it's on that cross that he turned the world upside down. And then his churches started turning the world upside down. And it was his death that did that for the payment of sin that by faith we trust in what he accomplished on our behalf. To reconcile us to the Father, to reconcile us to each other, and to ultimately start bringing about this new creation dynamic in the world.